Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruits, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you asked, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out, leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will be trampled down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for these words from Malachi and this wonderful invitation 
uh, to return to you, Lord. And we pray that as we reflect on these words now, that you would call us uh, and that you would urge us uh, towards yourself uh, so that we might truly know you, uh, the living God, through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen. I wonder what is the best uh, invitation that you've ever received from anybody. Uh, Maybe it was an invitation to a party or an invitation to a wedding or uh, an invitation on a holiday or something like that. Uh, I was thinking about what are some of the most exciting invitations I've ever received. One was I was once invited to uh, watch the fireworks from Government House in, in New South Wales. That was great, a great adventure. That was special because it's not the kind of thing that you normally get to do. Uh, it was a, a bit of a one-off. Uh, a friend of mine also invited me to preach at his wedding a number of years ago. And that was exciting because uh, it said something about uh, the strength of our relationship uh, and uh, the closeness of our relationships. There's all kinds of invitations and the different invitations that we've received that are special to us are often special for different reasons. Well, in this final chapter of Malachi, God issues to us, to the world, to the people that Malachi was speaking to, one of the most beautiful invitations that we can ever receive. It's special. It's a special invitation because it's an invitation from the God who made us, the God of heaven and earth. Uh, It's a special invitation because it's an invitation uh, to a relationship which has been restored after being broken. And it's special because it's such an undeserved invitation. Here in Malachi, uh, God is speaking to his people where his relationship with them is at breaking point. Uh, Their relationship is in distress. They've rejected God. They don't know that. They don't know that things are in such a bad way. Uh, And so God has come through Malachi to do this relationship counseling to let them know how the relationship is going. But the question now at the end of this book is, how can they deal with the situation that their relationship is in? How can they address that? What's the way forward for these people with God? Where do they go from here? And Malachi 3 and 4 gives us that answer. Well, God's answer to this relationship situation begins in chapter 3, verse 6. God says, I do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Uh, Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 3, or chapter 3 began, or the the section that we looked at last week, it began with this terrible picture of God uh, suddenly coming to visit his people and to purify them uh, like laundry soap and like a refiner's fire. God was coming to clean them up. He was coming to clean away all that was evil. Uh, But why hasn't God destroyed the people? Why hasn't he destroyed them because of their rejection of him, their rebellion against him? The answer is, God says, because he doesn't change. That is, he's made a promise to save a people for himself and he's going to follow through on that promise. But the reason is also because God is incredibly patient with them. They've been rebelling against God for thousands of years since the time of their ancestors, but God had still been patient 
you'd think after all that uh, they'd put God through that he would sort of, you know, throw in the towel and say, well, look, uh, I'm over this. But God hasn't done that. God says, I don't change, therefore you're not destroyed. Compare God's patience uh, with his people and with us uh, with our patience. I was driving uh, along the highway yesterday, uh, back from Hobart, and uh, I was in the, you know, the, the overtaking lane section. Uh, and there was a car in front of me that was doing sort of maybe 100, 105 in, you know, in the left-hand lane. But there wasn't quite enough space, you know, for me to get past before the, before the overtaking lane ended. I thought, that's okay. You know, it's, there'll be one before too long. The moment, you know what's going to happen, don't you? The moment that the overtaking lane ended, the speed dropped back down to 90. And I think, what's going on? 105 in the overtaking lane section and then 90 in the, in the single lane section. And I thought, this is ridiculous, Carl. Just be patient. Just be patient. We all know what it's like, don't we? We get frustrated when the person in front of us is, is not going the speed limit uh, or when they don't do the, the thing that we want them to do on the road or when someone that we know and love does something against us. We can maybe forgive them for it once, but if they do it twice or three times or four times or five times, it gets so much harder for us to be patient, doesn't it? Our patience lasts barely a few minutes. But God's patience with his people, with humanity, has lasted for thousands of years. But God's patience here has a purpose. God is not indefinitely patient, but God is patient in order that his people would return to him. God says, return to me and I will return to you. It's this wonderful picture of reconciliation. God's relationship with his people is like a marriage relationship. The people had cheated on God and God is now saying, come back to me. It's like a wife whose husband has cheated on her and their relationship is falling to pieces. And she writes to him and she says, I want you to come back. Come back to me and I'll come back to you. That's an extraordinary offer, isn't it? She's the one who's been wronged. She's the one who's been offended. And yet she invites him back. For him to go back, you know, for the, for the husband who's cheated on the wife to go back, that's hard, isn't it? There's shame attached to that, I guess. But in one sense, it's easy as well, isn't it? He's got n nothing to lose and everything to gain. But for her, for her to invite him back and to receive him back, that is immensely costly. Because she has to forgive it profound wrong and it's the same for God you know we sort of we sort of think of God's invitation return to me and I will return to you as equal parties you know we've you know we've both done some things that are a bit wrong and uh, maybe we can just come together and sort it out but that's not what it's, that's not what it's like we've wronged God he's not done anything to us he's the God who made us who sustains us and we've wronged him and he invites us back. It doesn't cost us anything. In the sense it's easy for us to go back. 
We've got everything to gain and nothing to lose. But for God to welcome us back comes at a cost. The cost of forgiveness. What's the cost of forgiveness? The life of his own son. God says, return to me and I will return to you. How do we know he's fair dinkum? Because he's already done what needs to be done to receive us back. Well, God invites us to come back to him. You might be far away from God today and God says to you, God is saying to you today, now return to me. You might be far away from God because just for a little while you've wandered away. Things have got out of hand. You didn't mean to sort of wander away from God but actually your life has just taken a slight change in direction. And for the last few months, you've just been heading further and further away from God. God says to you this morning, return to him and he'll return to you. Or maybe your whole life has been lived far away from God. And you think, well, I'd love to turn back to God, but surely he won't have me. But God says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you are not destroyed. God is a God of great patience. He bore with his people for thousands of years. He's born with humanity for thousands of years. God says, return to me and I will return to you. God offers us this wonderful invitation. And many of you may have received that invitation and have returned to God and and have been embraced by God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, God's invitation to you this morning is to keep living there. To live there with God and not turn away. Return to me, says God, and I will return to you. But the people in Malachi's day don't actually know how to do that. God says, return to me, and they say, how are we to return? The reason is perhaps because they didn't know what they'd actually done that had offended God. They were so ignorant of their relationship with God that they had no idea uh, how they were sinning against God. Well, God highlights in the rest of uh, chapter 3 and 4 two issues that were keeping them away from him. He's addressed a number of issues already through the book and now in this last chapter he uh, highlights two more. The first issue is that they are robbing God. They need to stop robbing God. That's how they are to return. Verse 8, will you, a mere mortal, rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. They're robbing God and they don't even know it. Uh, They're robbing God... Uh, in that they're uh, they're not giving him their tithes and their offerings. So in chapter 1, you might remember if you were here a couple of weeks ago, they were robbing God by bringing diseased offerings. So they were still bringing things. They were bringing animals from their herds to offer to God, but they were bringing the ones that they didn't actually really want, the ones that they were going to have to kind of chuck out anyway because they were diseased. They couldn't eat them or use them, and they were bringing those to God. They were robbing God like that. Here they're robbing God by keeping back their tithe. Now the tithe uh, in the Old Testament was where 
a person would take 10% of what they had, their, their herd or their crop or whatever it was, and they would give it to God. They would do, to do that because that's what God had commanded them to do as a way of honouring him uh, and as a way of acknowledging their dependence and their gratitude to him. But they, these people weren't doing that. They were keeping that 10% for themselves. And so God says to them, well, you're robbing me. Uh, they're not robbing God by taking back from God something that he already has. They're robbing God by not giving to him what belongs to him what they already have in their possession, but which they owe to him. We, uh, I think, uh, can so easily fall into that same uh, situation because we, like these people, fall into the, into the uh, error of thinking that everything that we have belongs to us. Part of the motivation of the tithe was to continually teach the people that what you have doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. We think, though, that all that we have is ours. And we fail to realise that all that we have is actually a gift from God to be used for his glory. And that reality goes much further than just 10%. Everything that we have belongs to God. All our money, all our gifts, all our property, all our possessions... All our time, everything that we have belongs to God. And it's important for us to ask whether the way that we use everything that we have, our money, our gifts, our resources, but especially, I think, our money, it's important for us to ask whether we, the way that we're using it, the money that God has loaned us is either robbing God or glorifying God. And that's not just a simple 10% figure that we can kind of pluck out, do the maths, and then get on with our lives. But that's an ongoing question. Am I robbing God? Are you robbing God in the way that you use what he has entrusted to you, the money that he has loaned to you? You see, once we understand, I think, that everything that we have belongs to God then it radically changes the kinds of questions that we ask. So instead of asking, is it okay for me to buy this or that? We begin to ask another question, which is, how best can I invest these resources that God has given to me? We won't ask, can I do this? Can I buy that caravan? Can I go out for dinner? Can I have a holiday? But we'll ask instead, well, what's the best investment? That might be refreshment, relaxation uh, and rejuvenation. But it might also be investing that money, giving it back to God in some way. If we live according to the principle that everything belongs to us, then we'll never think that we could rob God. But if everything that we have belongs to God in the first place and has been entrusted to us, then we don't, when we don't use it in the best way to honour and glorify God, then we'll realise that we're robbing from God. Well, God invites the people in Malachi's day to test him, 
in being generous. Verse 10, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. God is inviting them to test that if they're generous, he will uh, provide for them. This is, uh, this is not a universal promise here in this chapter, that if we turn to God, we'll be rich. God is here promising. God says, you know, if you uh, test me and, and see that I'll throw open the floodgates of heaven. God isn't promising that if we give away our, our money to him, that we'll be rich. But he's promising to undo the poverty that he brought on the people. So they were hoarding, they were trying to hoard all their money for themselves and God had brought poverty on them. The trees weren't dropping their fruit. Uh, you know, uh, things weren't working out for them in the, in the harvest fields. And God says, if you trust me, if you stop hoarding, actually, do you know what? I'll provide for you. One of the things that keeps us from being generous to God and giving back to God what he's loaned to us is our lack of trust. We, we, we don't think that we can survive without that money that God is calling us to use for his glory. We can't survive without that 10% or whatever it is. We need it for ourselves. God invites us to trust him. He invites us to trust that if we wisely and prayerfully invest what he's given to us, he'll look after us. Testing God doesn't mean recklessly giving away all that God has entrusted to us and hoping for the best. But it means thoughtfully and prayerfully considering how we can steward our money, as well as our time and our energy and other things, and then seeing that God will provide for us as we do that. Sometimes that will be easy, right? You'll have so much money or so much uh, uh, other resources uh, that it will be easy to trust God as you give, give, give things away recklessly almost. But sometimes it will be very hard. Sometimes you'll think, gosh... Uh, you know, I, I really feel like I should be generous in that area, but if I do that, it's really going to put a, a cramp on other areas of my life. And we need to learn to say, Lord, if you want me to do that, if you want me to be generous, help me to trust you in that. Help me to trust that you'll provide. Well, the people of Israel were robbing God and God invites, was inviting them to turn away from that and return to him. And God is inviting us, if we're robbing God, to turn away from that also and return to him. Second, though, the people uh, were also saying, God says, uh, that it was futile to serve God. Verse 13, you have spoken arrogantly, says the Lord, yet you ask... What have we said against you? Again, they don't seem to know what's going on. God says, you've said it's futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out all his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. The people were saying there's no point serving God. There's no point serving God because the, the, the people who are not following God seem to get away with it. They seem to prosper and we don't seem to do 
we don't seem to be any better off. There doesn't seem to be any advantage in serving God. It's futile. And it's so easy, I think, for us to kind of fall into that way of thinking. We say to ourselves, all my friends who aren't following Jesus, their lives seem to be easy. Their lives seem to be good. They just get on and do their own thing and it all just works out for them. But I'm flogging myself here. I'm, 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 I'm doing all this, I'm sacrificing all these things to serve Jesus. And, and what is it, what is it, where has it got me? What's the point of it all? Injustice just seems to flourish. Christians seem to be oppressed more and more. What's going on? What's the point of serving God? In the last couple of months, uh, two, two friends of mine, two colleagues, have suffered enormous life setbacks. Uh, one of them has been diagnosed with terminal bowel cancer. He's been given a couple of months to live. Uh, another one, his wife, they're both in ministry. Uh, another one, his wife has just been diagnosed with motor neurone disease, which is rapidly advancing. And you think, what's the point? All, that, all those years of faithful service. Why? It'd be so easy for them, wouldn't it, to ask that question. Why have I bothered, Lord? All those years, now for this. It's futile to serve God. Don't ever say that. What a rejection of the love and the kindness of God in Jesus Christ. But how tempting it can be to say that. And maybe you have said that. Or maybe you're thinking that. Or maybe you do want to give up. You've been serving God and it's not going anywhere. Please don't give up. God says, return to me and I will return to you. And again, God invites us to test him in this. Verse 17, on the day when I act, when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. God says that if they return to him and serve him, they will again see the difference between the people who follow God and those who do not. You may not be able to see it at the moment, but, but test me in this, says God, and you'll see the difference. God says, test me. And you'll see that I have compassion and spare those who serve me. The message is not, God's message here is not, come back, work really hard, and I'll reward you for that. God's message is, give yourself to serving me. And you'll see that that's a better life. You know, Qantas or Virgin 
is not just a better airline than Jetstar because you get frequent flyer points. They're not just better airlines because you get rewards for flying with them. They're better airlines because the experience is better. Because it's better to fly with them. Serving God is not like a frequent flyer program where if you invest, you get these, this reward scheme that comes back to you. Serving God is better because it's a better experience. It's a better life. We're living the life that God made us to live according to the plan and purpose that God made us to live according to. Dare to give God your best. Dare to return to God. And you'll see that it's a better way to live. Well, if you're standing far off from God, God says to you today, return to him and he'll return to you. It's a wonderful invitation. It's the most wonderful invitation that we can ever receive. But it's not an open-ended invitation. God's patience doesn't last forever. And we see that right at the end of the book of Malachi. Malachi doesn't only end with this great invitation. It ends with this great warning as well. Look at chapter 4. God says, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left of them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. God's mercy isn't unlimited. His patience is so that we would return. A day is coming, God says, when the opportunity to receive mercy, to return to God, that opportunity will have ended. A day is coming when the wicked, when those who don't trust in God, when those people will be trampled down. A day is coming when those who've continued to reject Jesus will be judged by God. But please realize that in the context of this wonderful invitation, there's no reason that any of us should be in that, in that second camp. There's no reason that anyone should be given up to the judgment of God, except the only reason would be the refusal to receive that wonderful, extraordinary invitation of God to return to him. The only thing that keeps us from the, can keep us from the grace of God and the mercy of God is our refusal to receive his invitation in Jesus. One of Jesus' most well-known parables is the parable of the prodigal son. And in that story, as you might remember, Jesus talks about a young man who leaves his family, he squanders his family wealth, but finally he comes to his senses and he says, I'm going to go home. And as he's returning home, he's within sight of the family home. His father sees him and he comes running out. He embraces him. He's come back. He's returned. 
and his father comes out to welcome him home. But there's that other brother, the older brother, who gets his nose out of joint. And he's out in the field while the rest of the family is in there celebrating and rejoicing in his other brother's return. He's sulking. And his father invites him in. Why don't you come in too and celebrate with us? But he's too bitter. He's too hardened. He's too caught up in himself. If you're still standing outside, refusing to receive that invitation of Jesus, what is it that's keeping you out? Is it a stubborn refusal that says, I just don't want to return to God. I think God's a monster. Or is it a refusal that says, I don't need to return to God. I've done nothing wrong. It doesn't matter what the reason is that we don't receive that invitation. What matters is that we don't receive it. Because if we don't receive the invitation, return to me, then the only other outcome is God's judgment. That same invitation stands for all of us to return to God. And many of us have received that. And that's wonderful. But there are many others who haven't. Who need to hear that invitation. Return to me. And I will return to you. How will you respond? How will they respond? God says, I the Lord do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Return to me, and I will return to you. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a a God of such extraordinary love that you invite us back, uh, even when we have done great wrong against you. And Lord, every single person on this earth who is living at the moment or who has ever lived, bar one, has rejected you uh, and sinned against you. Uh, and Lord, uh, you know the, the ways in which we have done that personally. Uh, and Lord, we've spent time already this morning confessing those different ways. But Lord, we, we pray that uh, in whatever way that is, that you would enable us to return to you. Lord, if that's robbing you, Uh, and keeping back from you what you own, uh, that you have entrusted to us. Lord, help us to turn away from that. Uh, Lord, if it's saying that serving you is futile, we ask that you would forgive us for that. Lord, help us to return with empty hands, like that younger brother, uh, and to receive your grace as you come running to us to receive us as a loving Father. And Lord, we pray too for the many others uh, in this world who need to hear your invitation. 
Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace and the strength and the courage to offer that invitation so that many more might hear your grace and receive it through Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. It's an opportunity for questions. Um, I think we're taking questions not only for today, but also from any time in the series as well. Um, so you're welcome to ask any questions about that. Graham's got a mic and you can put up your hand and he'll come, come to you. Thanks, Eamon. This is a rather complicated question, so I'll try and say it the best I can. Um, how do you tell when someone is being blessed by God for following what he says and distinguish that from when an evildoer is not being punished and seems to be doing well for themselves materially and before yeah. God judges them? Yeah. yeah, how can you tell? Yeah, that's a, a great question. I mean, I... I um, I think the only way that we uh, can tell is by marrying up, by looking at, the, at, the, at their life. So Jesus says, you know, God, God is such a generous God. He blesses uh, the, the righteous and the unrighteous. He, he sends the rain on everyone indiscriminately. You know, he's a God of profligate grace, if you like. Um, uh, so we can't tell just by looking at the... Um, uh, at, at the material blessings that they have, where they stand with God, the only way that we can tell is by yeah, looking at the uh, at their quality of their life with, with respect to are they following Jesus, are they trusting him, um, and then if they are, rejoice at the, at the good gifts that God has, has given to them. Too easy. Thanks, Graham.